0: Okay, good morning. Everybody, if you'd like to take your seats again, it's good to be together. It was great to worship together, and I think most of what I'm going to say this morning, we have already sung. It's fantastic. Um, As I said, my name is Emma. I'm really happy happy to be preaching to you today from God's Word God has been speaking to us over the summer as we've gone backwards and forwards in Nehemiah, (laughs) and we're rewinding this morning to Nehemiah 3, Um, but I hope you've caught that fresh excitement about God's plans and purposes for his church over the last few weeks. So let's pray and then I'll get started. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are here this morning, Lord God. I thank you. You are such a good God, Lord God. I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, Lord God. I pray that you would trim any words that I don't need to say this morning, Lord God. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts. And Lord, may you be glorified this morning. So when a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, when Mark asked if I'd preach one Sunday in the summer, I said yes, and I had right in mind this passage, and then a week or so before Dave arrived, Dave Fellingham, um, I said to to Joe, what is Dave preaching on when he's here? And Joe said, well, I think it's Nehemiah. Well, you can imagine my heart (laughs) at that point. I was like... No, I'm going to have to start all over again. Oh, no, what am I going to do? And, um, and it's funny because as Dave preached in the Bible Project reading plan, it got to Ezra and Nehemiah. And as I'm preparing the, uh, the kids club teaching for the fall, most of the weeks are about Nehemiah. And I said to Dave, what should I do? Should I, should I preach this the passage that I was thinking of? And he said, just, go and just preach it anyway. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that Joe spoke on chapter 5 last week because he did the background and I don't need to have to do much of that. But before we read it, I have a question for you. Do you have a project that you know should be done, but it's been sitting undone for a long time? It could be a renovation project, it could be a tidying job in your house or apartment, it could be something that you need to mend, it uh, could be a yard if you have one. You know those jobs, you're thinking of them right now. At the beginning of the year, Tim started to build a bathroom in our basement, um, and this is what it's looked like in January. He said it finished in February, it's August the 20th. Can you show me what it looks like? in um in august that (laughs) it looks like that Uh, we're waiting for a plumber can't move forward until the plumber comes Um, and it's that's a big job but there are lots of other um little jobs that we can put off and if you think i'm victimizing tim just ask me about my blog or my book (laughs) nowhere so, anyway, but that's a construction job. It's relevant to what we're talking about today. Um, so, this morning we're hearing about the rebuilding of the city wall of Jerusalem that had been broken down for a long time, as we've been hearing about, as you know from the last few weeks. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah end the history of the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the people of Israel, um, Judah, after they come back from being exiled. And for years they were exiled. And again, as Promised by God, they began to come back. They began to be brought back. And it's amazing to read how God orchestrates this using the nation that they had been exiled to, the nation and the kings of Persia. And it's to fulfill what God had promised through the prophets. And there were waves of exiles that returned as successive kings, encouraged people to return to their own native land. And at the time of Nehemiah, the temple had been rebuilt. Um, And that's another story of God speaking through prophets to see the people rise up to build the temple. But they'd settle back into life again until Nehemiah comes along to give them another prophetic prod. As Dave talked about, Nehemiah's prophetic voice and Ezra's apostolic role in the story give us a spiritual pattern for the church. And not only that, everything in the Old Testament tells us about Jesus. Every story whispers his name, as it says in the Jesus Storybook Bible. You see a foreshadowing of what Jesus will come and do. And the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And in Ephesians 4, 11-12, it talks about apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists being given to the church to do what? To equip the saints for works of service. And there's a sense of mending and bringing together that these gifts do in the church so that we can all be built up together in unity, attaining to the full measure of Christ, as it says. Go back four months on YouTube or on the podcast, and you can listen to Mark talk about that chapter. As Dave covered in his talks back in July, Nehemiah called the people to rise up and build, and the people responded that they will. And this is where we're picking up the story And I'm mindful, as I'm talking about this, that a lot of us responded that first morning that Dave spoke to rise up and build. So this is kind of a, what happens next? And how do we carry on with that, kind of? So here we are in the story, and I can tell you when I practiced reading this chapter on Friday, I questioned my life choices. (laughs) So we are going to read, and it will be up on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bible, and I will attempt this. To read this passage, but it's good to hear the word of God. So then, Elijah, the high priest, rose up. Oh, before I start, I was going to ask, specific, especially if you're younger, whilst you're listening to this, because it's a lot of names and it's a lot of details, listen out for the jobs there are in, in, in this passage. There are quite a few jobs, just listen for them, because I might ask you later. So, then Elisha, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel, and next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Miramoth the son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, repaired. And next to them, Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Barna, repaired. And next to them, the Techoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joedah, the son of Pasea, and Meshulam, the sons of Besodea, repaired the gate of Yashanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Meranothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mitzpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Aziel, the son of Harahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphael, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, jadaeus the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Malchiah, the son of Harim and Hashab, the son of Path of Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it, set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkiah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakerem, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalem, the son of Kolhoez, ruler of the district of Mitzpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and he built the wall of the pool of Shiloh, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Asbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired Repaired, as far, uh, oh, 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 repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired. Riam the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half dis- the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai the son of Henadad, ruler of half the... Oh, I've read that. <laughs> the son of next to him, Isa the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mitzpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. And after him, Baruch, the son of Zebai, repaired another section, another section, from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib the high priest. After him, Miramoth We had him before, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah repaired beside his own house. After him, Bin-Nui, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Pelal, the son of Uzziah, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower, projecting from the up house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pediah the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower after him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of af- fell. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Imma, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shalamiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section, after him, Meshelem, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. And after him, Malkiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants. Opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. <laughs> <laughs> And in Nehemiah 6:15, it says, "So the wall was completed on the twenty-fifth of Elul in fifty-two days." That was a lot of names and details, right? There are lots of lists and names in the Bible. And in 1 Timothy 3:16, it says, "All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness." So these are useful for to us. We know that this has something to say to us today. A bunch of names and details about building a wall. It says something about building the church today. And you can read a chapter like this and and, uh, wonder, what is it teaching us about God? Because it's just names and details. But this one tells of a people who God is restoring to himself. Not just the general story, even, of the exiles being restored, but also some of these individuals. In their family line, they're messed up. In Ezra we see how Ezra had to address some problems of the people intermarrying with people from other nations. It's a recurring problem. It was a messy time, and some of the children of these people who were kind of rebuked, they're now building the wall. So God has done some restoration, and God loves to restore people to himself. We've been singing it this morning. If you've got mess in your past, and the Bible tells us we all do, we've all sinned, you need to know that God has made a way for you to be restored. And whatever has happened to us, happens, he can do his re- redeeming work in your life. God restores and he redeems us. We were on the beach a couple of weeks ago. And Tim, like, I'm, it feels like I'm having a go at Tim. <laughs> I've asked, I've asked. But he, he was like, he always is very kind of, he's always got something he's thinking about, deep, deep stuff. And he was looking around, and he said to us all on the beach, he said, oh, you know, the beach is a great like, equalizer. It's a great leveler. And we all look at him, okay, you know. And then he goes on, well, we're all wandering around with swim shorts on and bikinis or bathing suits, and you don't know who, you, who everyone is. They could be a millionaire. They could be a construction worker. They could be a teacher. It's hard to tell. Um, It is really weird if you think about how we love to strip off on the beach and walk around. It's just just weird (laughs) if you think about it too much. But anyway, so this is what I was thinking, and Kara and Phoebe kind of questioned that. They said, you can tell. (laughs) But really, the great leveler is standing before God. Because before a perfect God, it doesn't matter what you look like, what your job is, what you wear or don't wear, what you do, what you've done. We've all fallen short, and we can't fix ourselves. And that's why Jesus came to live the perfect life we never could, to die in our place on the cross so that we can receive forgiveness from God and be adopted as children of God. So why am I going into that right at the beginning of this? It's because we're going to be talking about serving. And if we don't talk about grace first and how we haven't done nothing, as Gary reminded us, God is able. We are not able to save ourselves. We might go into talking about serving and kind of get into feeling like we should be doing stuff to earn God's favor or we should, um, you know, do this so God loves us. God already loves us so much that he's given his son for us. Jesus brings us out of slavery to sin and into freedom and relationship with him. But that does provoke a response and a willingness in our hearts because we've received that love. And just like we have jobs that are right in front of us and we leave for days, months, even years, the Jews who had returned to the land had been staring at the ruins and rubble of the walls for years. And had they just become accustomed to it, like we do some jobs, um, of things being undone? Or did they just, I doubt they noticed. They were like living in a war zone. They'd been in, through a war, there were ruins, but maybe they just didn't have the means to repair. Maybe they'd um, just become accustomed to being a disgraced and, and downtrodden people. We know that they did have opposition all around them because Nehemiah refers to it. And the magnitude of the destruction must have been quite overwhelming. But they just didn't know how to go about rebuilding until Nehemiah gave them a prophetic and administrative boost. Nehemiah was a great administrator. <laughs> and they begin, well, most of them do. The Bible tells it like it is. And in chapter 2, when Nehemiah told them about the work to be done, they responded with, "Yes, let's arise and build. We're with you, Nehemiah. But we find at the beginning of Nehemiah 3 that not everyone did. And the chapter points that out. The nobles of Tekoa wouldn't put their shoulders to the work. They wouldn't submit to the Lord and they were too proud to stoop to working in the dirt and rubble. It was okay for the men of Tekoa to go, and boy, they did they work hard. But the nobles held back. They wouldn't come under authority. And it's very easy to be swept up and respond to a call from God. But when it comes to the nitty-gritty of the work, when it means taking direction from others, humbling ourselves to become part of a team, that's where what's really in our hearts starts to come out. These nobles had got comfortable with their position and privileges. They didn't want to leave that, even for a short time. They lived outside the city. Maybe they thought, well, it's, you know, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. That's like 16 miles down the road. You know, it doesn't affect us. But so many others did arise and build. Can you tell me, when we were reading, did you hear any of the people, were they builders? Were any of them builders that you could hear by trade? No. So did you hear what they were? Can anyone remember any of the trades or professions you might have heard? Perfumers. Perfumers. Yes, goldsmiths. And what else? Priest. Priest, yes. And there are a few others. They're going to come up. They're going to come up right on the screen. There they are. They're all there. Yeah, merchants. There's goldsmiths, perfumers, priests, nobles, rulers, merchants, and temple servants. If you were going to build a wall around a city, wouldn't you get the best builders in? These were just ordinary people from all walks of life. Even Shalom's daughters are mentioned, and whole families serving together on the task at hand. So it included women, which is really unusual for those days. And I know in your head, maybe you're thinking that those daughters must have been the equivalent of Louisa in Encanto. Do you know that? <laughs> but I'm sure they're just ordinary. <laughs> but this gives us a picture of the church. And we may be all, we come from all different backgrounds, all walks of life. We um, have all different vocations. But God brings us together so we can partner with him and with each other to build his church he breaks down the dividing walls between people groups generations and classes tim and i tried to think of what kind of people have been on the kids club team i'll talk about the kids club team a bit it's not the only team in the church it happens to be the one i'm in <laughs> i lead at the moment so anyway uh, tim and i tried to think of what kind of people have been on the kids club team over the last 6 years you know, what different jobs, what walks of life. So we've had middle school students, high school students, university students, an accountant, an artist, a bus driver, a pastor, retail assistants and managers, teachers, a settlement worker, an architect, a statistician. I can't remember remember what Andy's job was. But maths, like numbers. A library clerk, administrators and a construction worker. Young and old mothers, Fathers, families, couples, singles, young people serving together. And that's just the kids club team. That's not the whole church. God's taken us all. We're not experts in what we're doing. But God's using us and equipping us for what he's doing. And what we see from story after story throughout the Bible is that God uses unlikely, weak, and ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. Think of David, a shepherd boy. Think of Gideon, like he was hiding away, wasn't he? And God said, you know, mighty man of valor. And who did Jesus choose as his disciples? He didn't choose the leaders of the day. He chose ordinary people, an unlikely bunch who wouldn't naturally even be friends. He brought them together and Jesus specializes in bringing all kinds of people together to build the church and Paul writes in 1 Corinthians but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's who we're singing to this morning. We say God is able. He's the one who does it. He's the one who brings us together. And sometimes we look foolish and weak, but God is the one who shows his strength through us. And Jesus calls us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on him. He wants us to see what he can do through us when we trust him. And as Dave talked about, consecrate ourselves to his work. We're doing the work to glorify Jesus rather than to bring glory to ourselves. And he doesn't want the people who are serving out of duty, but those with changed and willing hearts. Those willing to give the little that we may feel we have in terms of resources, skills, and time. Not only was building not their primary skill, but these people were also going to have to put aside their main way of earning a living to take part in the task. They had to have a vision and passion for what they were doing, a dedication to the Lord. Many came from outside the city, from the towns surrounding Jerusalem. They didn't even live in Jerusalem. The walls being repaired didn't obviously affect their daily life, but they took part in the work anyway. And some, on the other hand, were rebuilding right outside their houses. They had to put aside what their primary skill or gifting was, and they were willing to build. They got hold of what God was doing. Still, it wasn't an easy thing to do, and as Joe said last week, there were challenges during that time, very real challenges and hardships. But they were still willing to keep on building. Nehemiah has already shown us this pattern of service. He leaves the palace where he works for a king, leaves his privileged, comfortable position, you could argue, and goes to a land that is broken and shamed. The people put aside their comfort to be obedient to what God's called them to do. Both Nehemiah and the people have their hope, their hope is in God who is faithful to his promises when they step out in obedience to him. And what we see in this is a whisper of Jesus. I've got an illustration I am borrowing from Andrew Wilson, and Grace and Josh will have heard it at New Day. Absolutely certain they will have done. (laughs) Um, Because I had heard it before, but that's where I've most recently heard it. Uh, And I am a book person, I like literature, so this is a great like, like one for me, but it's very simple, so don't switch it off. It's going to be super simple. Bear with me. So, do you see life as a tragedy or a comedy? Has anyone here studied Shakespeare at school? Yeah. Not many. Oh, not many. But you'd have heard of Shakespeare. <laughs> um, so, do you know Romeo? Everyone knows Romeo and Juliet. Now, is that a tragedy or a comedy? Tragedy, tragedy yes. Macbeth, tragedy or comedy? Tragedy. tragedy. What happens in a tragedy? Everybody dies. <laughs> Everybody dies. <laughs> in, in the tragedy, the characters show a bit of promise, and, they, and it could go well, and it's kind of going up in the middle, and I have a picture. It's like that frown face. The frown face. It goes up in the middle and there's a bit of kind of hope there, but then it all goes wrong and through terrible decisions, communication problems, crossed wires, all the main characters die. It's shaped like the frown. That's a tragedy. Up in the middle, crashes down at the end. Disasters, funerals. It's hopeless. Now, on the other hand, in literature, a comedy. Now, comedy in literature is not just a funny, You know, we think of comedy as funny, ha-ha. But it's one about ordinary people. It's a story about ordinary people that has a happy ending. So, um, in contrast to The Frown, it goes down in the middle, up at the end. So, there's a problem in the middle, and it gets resolved. That's the story. So, in Shakespeare... Um, There's, like, Much Ado About Nothing, that's a comedy, or Midsummer Night's Dream, Twelfth Night, um, or one of my favorites is The Winter's Tale. I did that at school, not many people do, but it's got the best line because it says, Exit, pursued by a bear. (laughs) And anyway, there's a bit of tragedy in there too. But anyway, mainly there's a problem in the middle of the story and it's all gone wrong, but then it goes up at the end. And, yeah, they're shaped like a smile. But most people in our culture see life shaped like a tragedy. It's like the frown. You're born, your high point in life is when you're young and you can do all this stuff and there's so many things that are possible and you have to have all the experiences and experience as much of it as you can for yourself when you're young and you can do it because you only live once and then it's just all going to go downhill from then, and then you die. And if you've watched the Barbie movie, I'm sorry, <laughs> but if you've watched the Barbie movie, um, lots of funny bits in it, uh, but you'll know that how life in the real world was portrayed in this movie. Basically, Barbie's given, like, you know, do you want to go to the real world? This is her choice at the end. Sorry, spoilers. Put your fingers in the ear if you're going to um, watch it. But um, you can have all these experiences if you have, like, go to the real world, have real life. But in the end, you're going to die. You can have the great experiences, and it's important that you can, you know, have all these experiences and do these things for yourself, but you're going you're gonna to die in the end. There's a funeral at the end, and that's our kind of materialistic, atheist worldview that... Most people, if they're honest, that's how they see life. And they'll struggle when things go wrong and there's suffering, because it doesn't fit, does it? You know, you're supposed to have a great life because, you know, it's all going to going to die in the end. But the story of Jesus and Scripture and our, and our story, when we're in Christ, is the smile. Listen to Jesus' words from John 12 as he's talking about he's just ridden into Jerusalem, triumphal entry, everyone's cheering him, and then he tells his disciples he's going to die. And uh, this is what he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And in Luke 922 to 24, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus' life is shaped like a smile. It goes down and it goes up. And it's an inversion of the world's perspective on life because what did Jesus do? He came down from heaven to earth. He didn't have to. He could have chosen to stay with his Father and just be in happy communion with the Trinity forever. And that would have been sufficient. But he chose to come down because he loves us to be planted in the ground, to die, not only to come down and live on earth, but to die, to be crucified, to bleed on the cross, to go down into death, to defeat sin and death. And then he rose from the dead. <clears throat> and I, this is such great news. <laughs> um, and I woke up this morning and, with a quote in my head um, from Jim Elliott. And I think it's going to be on the screen. Yes, it's on the screen. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott was a missionary in the late 40s, early 50s, he went to the Alca tribe in Ecuador, and he was killed with his four friends um, when they went there. They built a relationship with the with the tribe's people, like they've been working on it, and then they finally kind of landed in their plane. I think they've been, it came to me this morning, I haven't written this down, I'm just trying to remember. But anyway, he knew what that phrase meant. A seed has to be planted to bear much fruit, and Jesus has and continues to bear much fruit. Because he went down into death. He died to bear the shame and punishment for sin we deserved. And we are the fruit of his death. And because he rose again, we will rise to new life. And that was the joy set before him, that he would bear much fruit and bring many sons to glory. We have the hope of resurrection. And the bit we're in now is the bottom of the smile. It's gone. (laughs) The bottom of the smile. Fruit contains seed which gets planted in the ground. We're the fruit of Jesus' death, and we, in our turn, contain seed which gets planted. And when we're in Jesus, we do what he did. We follow him in his death and resurrection. We're behind him on the smile curve, being pulled along in him. And if you think about it, when we're baptized, that's the picture that we're give, giving it, so like a symbol of what we're, what's happened to us when we're saved. We've gone, we die to our old life, we go down into death, and we're born again into new life, coming up out of the water. Resurrection awaits us. He will redeem everything at the end, and we'll be part of that wedding feast in the last, last chapter of the Bible when Jesus and his bride are together and death is no more. Jesus allowed himself to be planted in the ground and die so he would bring life to many. And God, God calls us to this kind of lifestyle. In Philippians 2 verse 7, it says, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we're called to have the same mindset. And it will help us, as we settle in to build and to serve, because that's just how the kingdom works. Giving your life, dying to yourself for the sake of others, trusting in Jesus and relying on his strength and the power of the Spirit to do these things, because we know the unglamorous tasks of today, the ones so unseen that they're buried, when we're willing to become uncomfortable and to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. When we're humble enough to go back to the real, basic tasks and get our hands dirty, they're like those seeds planted that will bear much fruit. It <clears throat> goes against what our culture says now, the reverse. We're in a culture that loves to perform, to be visible, until they have the appearance of living a fantastic life. It loves to protect and promote our own lives and our own self. So individualistic. It tells us to hold on to our lives and say, look at me, this is me, here I am. But in contrast, Jesus calls us to a hidden life with him. One where we allow ourselves to be planted in the ground for the sake of others. One where we let go of the control we have, which we don't really have, on our lives and take risks for him. It costs us greatly, but he has promised to be with us. And we instead of saying, look at me, we're saying, look at him. Whatever role we have in church and out in our daily lives, we are all servants of God and one another. And one of the privileges of being the administrator is seeing the people who do all the unseen things. The ways people serve that most will never hear about, whether it's taking people for coffee, filling in forms, visiting people, doing practical tasks here in the building, Um, People serving each other in life groups, making meals, um, doing all kinds of tasks, visiting kids' club kids, setting up, setting down for things here, um, learning lines for a Bible lesson, and there's lots of things that I never hear about. It's quiet serving and faithfulness, and it's really humbling to see. Serving Jesus as part of his church is the most worthwhile thing you will do on this earth. Because what's Jesus doing? He says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus loves the church and gave himself up for her. Do we love the church? I just want to ask that question. I'll leave that there. It won't always feel like the most worthwhile thing, as I've said. It will feel like dust and rubble and hard work. You will be tired sometimes. You will encounter opposition and what happened to these people who built the wall? They saw God do an amazing thing. They finished in 52 days, even though they weren't expert builders. God was with them. But they had to learn to be, they were kind of discipled along the way. So as we can see, as the Jews rebuilt the wall, side by side, it wasn't just about building a wall, but building them back together as people as well. And when we work together on teams and together in the church, God builds us together. We get discipled as we go along. And this is my experience on on various teams and on the kids' club team. God builds character in us. As we serve together, we see Jesus build us together and we grow. We get discipled. We learn perseverance. We see each other at our best and our worst and continue to encourage one another. And we find our gifting. I want to encourage you, if you feel God has called you to something specific, if you've got a particular thing that you think, God has asked me to do this, I'd encourage you to just start serving now where you are. Cultivate that heart of service and where God has placed you right now. Even though he might have things for you way off, it starts now just serving. And if you're here for a short time, find a way to serve find a team to be part of, doesn't even have to be necessarily be on a big team, we serve each other so many different ways, there's so many little things, and, 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 you know, when they're building the wall, you heard about people who were building a little section, and that's all they could do with this little section, and some people did their section, and then they went and did another one. And they had, you know, God calls different people to do different things. It doesn't matter whether it's a little thing or whether it's a big thing. It's just serving Jesus. And in one of her books, Christine Kane uh, talks about when she first... Uh, Christine Kane, is, she founded the A21 uh, campaign, which like, rescues people from slavery and advocates for people in slavery and educates. And, um, but anyway, when she first became a Christian... She was so excited to just to be in the church building. She wanted to be in the church building and she'd just sweep the floors, clear up vomit. And she did, did She just, I don't know why she mentions that, but I'm sure it was relevant at the time in the book. But you know. And she was just around. She just wanted to be around and be where God's people were. And she learned and she grew until one day she was asked to kind of help on the youth group team and then... It just grew from there, and God led her to where she is today. But God builds character when you're sweeping floors and doing those jobs. It's not the glamorous jobs. In the unglamorous jobs, God builds character in us, and He is more interested in our hearts and our developing our character than what you know we're outwardly doing. Um, and if, just just as an aside, if you want to learn to preach, join the kids club team. Anyway, <laughs> living life for Jesus here on earth costs, but the rewards outstrip the temporary comfort and pleasure we may forego to do so. The nobles of Tokoa missed out. I lo- <laughs> they missed out. Maybe they got the benefits of living in the land which was, which was more rebuilt. So I mean, they must have benefited from the work, but they themselves missed out on the blessing of being part of the work. And I just, I don't know how I'm doing for time. But, because um, I put this, if time, <laughs> say this. But I just want to say, re- really briefly, um, let's try and summarize this. Because you know in Isaiah 58, where it's talking about um, true obedience. True, it's not just the outward stuff. You know, the, the fast that God values. It's not like looking like you're doing the right thing. It's about actually obeying him and actually showing mercy and love, as Joe was talking about last week, to the poor, to those who are oppressed. But then there's a promise at the end, and it says, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. He will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. And you'll be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. We don't wait until we're sorted out to start serving. We're called to spend ourselves on behalf of others. But the promise is, then, that our healing will quickly appear. We're on that smile curve, remember? We're heading for glory. The Lord will guide us and strengthen us, water us with his Holy Spirit, and we'll be called repairer of broken walls. As we've heard over and over in the last few weeks, we're not called to build walls around a city. Those days are gone. Now Jesus is building his church, rebuilding people. Our walls do not shut people out, but invite people into their safety, to the safety of a life lived in Christ. And as a church, we're in a time where there is rubble and rebuilding to be done. I think that's fair to say. As Joe said last week, we're in the in-between. There's literally going to be rubble in the next few months, but also we're working out how we can reach our community here. And we're looking to plant out to another city, to Halifax. Man, there are going to be challenges, aren't there? Whether we're those who stay or go. And there's a cost. In times like these, God calls us to be willing to build and to serve together. We don't do it alone, which is very encouraging. We don't have to step out by ourselves because we're in a family together together. And in this time, sometimes you need to be doing things that aren't necessarily in your wheelhouse. And sometimes you'll be called on to do things that might not benefit you in the long term. Like if you're going, but keep serving. Whatever we do, let's do it with faith because Jesus is the one building his church and can take the little that we have and multiply it. We have such a great hope as we live our lives for Jesus because we know the ending. This life isn't the end. The ending is the turn up in the smile. The ending is victory. Jesus returns and death is defeated and we're resurrected and take part in his wedding feast and spend eternity with him. So Jesus invites us into what he's doing. And in the end, it's not about us, it is about him. It's for our good and the good of the community we're in. And ultimately, it's for his glory. So I encourage you today to not hold back. Yes, you can come (laughs) up in the worship team. So as we approach September, when it gets busier for a lot of us, and we can get involved in so many activities, I want to ask, do we prioritize what God is calling us to? Do we make time to serve? Is God asking you to put something aside so you can serve him and take part in what he's doing among us? It's a good time to evaluate what we fill our lives with so we're not living as though this life is all there is, but we're living for eternity with Jesus. Do you have a yes in your heart when it comes to church? In the day-to-day of life, many serving jobs in the church are not glamorous. It is a bit like moving rubble and placing bricks one by one. Yet if we give ourselves fully to the work, not out of duty, but out of love for Jesus, serving side by side with each other, he can do miracles and help us build what he's called us to in this local church that is beyond our capabilities, that will bear much fruit for his glory. So I'll pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for what you have done for us, Lord God, that you've brought us into your kingdom. That's a kingdom that we have a hope, Lord God. We have a hope of eternity, Lord God. And you, not only that hope, but we live it out right in the the here and now. It's the now and not yet, but Lord, I thank you for that hope we have, Lord. Help us to serve you with our whole hearts, to be wholehearted, um, living for you, Lord Jesus. Amen. I'll hand over